Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacorn Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 5, Revisiting Mythical Women. Episode 3, Revisiting Ethlu. The birth of Lou. The air was rippled with water and sunshine, but through one small round window shone a bright, brave sunbeam, clear and golden, cutting its way into the dim glow of the room. And in its cutting sat Ethne. She sat still, facing the window, facing the clear light, the fresh air, and a tear flowed down one cheek. For this chamber, built of glowing stone, furnished with fine woods and intricate embroideries, was the eye of a needle of stone. Oh, it was a wonderful tower. It was a magic tower, but it had no door. And she was its prisoner, suspended in time. Outside, somewhere on the bleak and desolate island, her father, Balor, raged. For there had been a warning, a foretelling. If Ethlyn had a child, a son then he would destroy his grandfather, and so Balor, the malevolent, one-eyed giant of the Fomora, had raised from the bedrock the Tower of Glassy Stone. And there he had placed Ethlyn to grow hidden from the world. But prophecies have a way of coming true. Balor felt safe, felt able to live his life of war and robbery, but in his greed he began the weaving of the web of his own death. And so the spell that was to sing Lou into being began to wind. There was a cow. It was no ordinary cow, the Glasgowan. She was dappled as white foam on dark water and fertile as the sea. She was coveted by many, but owned by Cian of the Tour de Donan, and Balor was jealous. Through the trick of his shape-shifting, Balor came to the place where the forge of Govnu was heavy with iron and Cian absorbed in the growing of a sword. Balor came in trickery and, grasping the halter of the cow, led her away through the green waves to his hidden isle. But Cian would not be thwarted. In his anger, he called upon Birog, druid of the mountains. Laughing, she carried him over the waters, shrouded him in fronds of shadowed cloud, veiled him in sun haze. And there, on that island, he found Ethlyn. She received him in joy, recognising in him the seed of her freedom. And the shadowed walls of the tower were warmed and transformed, and for a brief while the poison eye of Balor closed in sleep. And in her time, Ethlyn gave birth to the child, Lou. And then Balor woke, feeling the surge of green growth, feeling the sun warming the land into solidity, into wholeness. In his anger, he took up the child and cast it into the unformed, ever-changing sea. But Lou, born of air and fire, now took to his own the element of water. He danced with the salmon on the sea's crest. He turned the wave's curves with the eel. And Birog of the mountains caught him up, scattering silver water drops, carrying him to his destiny, the Ildana. 
Well, this episode starts with a folktale because the story of the birth of Lou isn't there in the old text. It doesn't exist. So perhaps the best way to revise this story is to look at who's involved. Yes, indeed. The dramatis personae. Mm-hmm. And based on your telling of the story, that involves, well, Lou, who's mm-hmm. in the title of the story, Ethelin, who's his mother in the story, Balor, the grandfather, Kian, the father, and even Gofnir comes into this one. Who owns the cow in exactly. this story. But in fact, if we look at it in a broader framework than just as the story of the birth of Lou, the tales of Ethelou brings in a huge amount and a vast array of different stories from both textual and oral sources. Yeah, and so many of them are sort of intensely entangled. Mm. So in the last four years, and it is nearly four years since we first looked at this story and prepared it for story archaeology, we've uncovered so much more illuminating connecting material. It is all there upon our website and What we can do in this revisit is to signpost some of that other material that we've already covered. So we'll be giving you an awful lot of cross-references. So as we said, this story of the birth of Lou only comes from a folktale. Hang on a minute, what do you mean only a folktale? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) What I said was its only source is an oral one. But as we have found again and again, oral sources are absolute gold mines for filling in some blanks. What we didn't say, I noticed, in the original episode that follows is that this tale comes from Jeremiah Curtin's Hero Tales of Ireland. Yeah. Now, Jeremiah Curtin was quite an important story collector, wasn't he? He really was. He was an Irish-American anthropologist. He spent years and years travelling not only in Ireland but all over the States and lots of other places, as an anthropologist collecting Mm. stories in the sort of mid to late 19th century. He made several trips to Ireland. Particularly the west of Ireland. Yeah, and particularly down Cork and Kerry, he seems to have done a lot. Although he did also go up to Donegal. Mm -hmm. So, but it was very much down the west coast where that tradition was still very much alive. He was interested in preserving as much as he could the shape and the feeling, the flavour of these stories. I think actually he's done a good job. I think so too. And because we didn't say that explicitly about the story coming from Curtin in the original episode, we've since gone back and looked at some of his collections and in fact uncovered some real gems. And we're going to come to those later on in this discussion because they're just so good and they're so matched with what we're talking about in this entire discussion. Yeah, they really give a lot of supporting information, don't they? They And some connections that we've missed. Exactly. You know, something that's come up again, and I noticed when we were looking at the material that goes into Ethlu, is the nature of the contrasting qualities of folklore and mythology. Yeah. As near as I can get to it, really. Yeah, well, it brings to mind for me a quote that I really like, which is from A.S. Byatt. She wrote a version of the saga of Ragnarok, which is well worth going out and finding. It's just called Ragnarok. But there's this little quote that always pops into my head where she says, In myth, the most important is the first of three. But in fairy tale and in folklore, the rule of three is different. There, the most important player comes third, the youngest son. 
And I, I don't know whether that clarifies anything. <laughs> well, it's a bit odd because later on we'll be meeting two of Jeremiah's curtain stories that actually completely stretch that rule of three. Yeah. <laughs> and they both have the lucky youngest son replaced by in a sort of three-in-one setup. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Exactly. Just a really interesting issue. It is. And in fact, it's an issue that although we've kind of bumped up against it on many occasions, I don't think we've really discussed it in detail. One of the things that comes to mind is that I feel like there's a parallel between that interaction of folktale and mythology and the interaction of oral and literary which yeah, we've I also come up right. against on many occasions yeah it's got my brain reeling on that I keep mm. thinking of lots of things we could say but I think we're going to have to come back to this issue this yeah com- it's complicated and fascinating mm. and you know I want to go away and think about parameters and definitions yes <laughs> So we'll have to save that one for another time, folks. For now, I suppose we ought to go back to the dramatis personae yeah. of the tale we began with. Mm-hmm. Its central story is the birth of Lou. Yeah. So, Lou, what can we add about him after four years? Uh, well, rather a shed load. He did get an entire episode to himself in our second series on Moitura, which I think was episode three. We did go into really a lot of detail yeah, about who he is or who he was. And I suppose if you sort of try and sum that up, he's a shiny foreigner yeah. who's been brought in as an exotic star Yes, who becomes the centrepiece of Mo- the Moitura epic. It's like the... bringing an American star into a British film. <laughs> Only in this tape is a continental, very, very oh, yeah. popular character exactly. who we have to have him starring in an Irish yeah. epic. In some of these threads, Lou has been fostered and taught by Mananon, and particularly in the later kind of Children of Turn strand of his story. Um, And as we saw when we were looking for and looking at Mananon at the end of the last series, things might not be what they seem there either. Exactly. So that one might complicate things (laughs) a bit. (laughs) Well, that's the Mither series four, episodes 12 and 13. Yeah, yeah. Later, he also gets identified with, let me see, Finn, Taliesin, Mm -hmm. and even Cormac. You'll find that in the stories of the birth of Mongorn. Yeah. And that's series four, episode nine. Mm-hmm. But then Mongorn himself, Mongorn hasn't finished with us yet. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely some sort of saviour child. Yeah. And himself an Ildomuk. Exactly, yeah. There's a lot of parallels between them as characters. Well, we commented in the original episode about how Lou is always referred to as Lou Mock So he's the son of Eslu. Mm-hmm. Again, this kind of matronymic rather than a patronymic thing. He is sometimes, I have to point out, referred to as Mock and Mock so the son of Cian and of Ethlu. Mm. So both his parents are given in his name. They are, but it's the Ethlin bit that seems to be dominant in his case. We've said more than once that there's no text of the birth of Lu. Mm. We do have the text of the conception and birth of Mongorn, and of course the birth of Oingus. Yeah, and in fact it did occur to me, we're saying how Lu has had his own episode, we've done Mongorn, all these other guys... Oingus hasn't had an episode yet. Well, That's a bit of an oversight. Yeah, and he does have more stories than his birth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we said in the original episode, while we don't have a text for the birth of Lou in Irish, there is one in the Welsh for Slough, where his mother is Arianrod and he is born with a twin, Dylan. What does Dylan's name actually mean? I always automatically thought it meant Dylan means of the sea. Mm. But is that correct? Well, it's not far off it. I mean, the tiny amount of research that I've done, and once again, not an expert people, in uh, etymology for Dylan, is that it seems to be 
a large or great flow or a great tide. So it does have elements of the sea there. Yeah, I'm back on Mongol. Yeah. <laughs> We're still not seeing the whole of how important he is. Mm. Uh, and of course, his name means flowing, but that's of hair, isn't it? Flowing hair. Yeah. But I still think the metaphor holds. Well, there's certainly both children who come from the sea. Both Lu and Mongon, of course, were fostered out to Mananon. They're sort of wonder children who are born, then taken away and hidden, kept away from Ireland until they're old enough, until they can come back as young men to claim their rightful place. Yeah, now I had sort of wondered if the missing birth story in the Irish tradition might support Lou's wholesale bringing in as a foreign star. Mm. But actually what you're saying means that it just could be the natural process anyway. It could be, but on the other hand, you know, we did discover all this incredible stuff about Mungon and feel that he was a lost hero child. So maybe Lou kind of reigned on his parade a bit. So what can we add now about the character of Kian after this four-year period? Well, we have now Kian's story in The Children of Turin, which mm. is part of the syncretic Laura Gawala strand. Yeah. That's series two, episode nine. Exactly, we dealt with that part of Moitura. And as we'll see later, this is backed up by oral folktales again. It is, but not only folktales. <laughs> not only. <laughs> What we have in one of these wonderful gems from Jeremiah Curtin is that the Kean in that version of the story is the father of our dear old friend Tyg McCain, who had such a colourful Imral. And that's really literary, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is very much a literary composition. There are connections still to oh, the Oh yes, yeah, that was stuff. series four, episode seven. Seven, that's it. Let's turn our minds to the grandfather, Balor. Mm-hmm. Have we yeah. got anything to add about him? Perhaps what I'd like to add is the right way to say fover and foverer. Yes, yeah. Well, it's not surprising. I mean, even I sometimes find myself falling back on these so Anglic- familiar anglicisations, yeah. pronunciations like Fomorian, even I'll say Morrigan from time to time. Um, it is very difficult when you've been reading things in English for such a long time. It's very difficult then to, very, very long to time. retrain yourself. And Even then, though I've had 20 years of it now. Yeah, but, you know, it's still the things that go in as a child tend to stick. Mm. And we both read these stories as children mm-hmm. with those awful anglicised uh, transliterations. <laughs> I mean, they are sometimes just unreadable. And we often sort of subtly edit them as we go through them. We do. Yeah. Even then you've got the issue between old Irish pronunciation and modern Irish pronunciation. Of course it's confusion, doesn't it? Of course it does. Lavergavola. Or Levergavola. These things change over time. So, again, sometimes I find myself using a modern Irish pronunciation rather than and old some Irish words it's almost impossible to deal with like yeah. Cahullan's childhood name oh yes Shadenda yeah <laughs> yes if you're going to school and talk about the childhood of Shadenda yeah no one knows what you're on about yeah whereas Satanta has a sports channel named after him <laughs> you mean Shadenda yeah <laughs> You see, sometimes you can't beat it. Anyway, let's go back to Balor. Yeah. Now, I suppose, first and foremost, he gets seen as a typical fairy tale ogre. Yeah, and we have discussed before that kind of locking the girl in the tower and how that's so kind of European folktale. It turns up, you know, the glass mountain goes like you could probably name loads of stories, Mm. uh, even perhaps right going back to ancient Egypt. Oh, yes. Only in that case, it was the prince who was locked in the tower and the princess had to come and rescue him. Excellent. He'd been locked there by his father who had some sort of divination that his son would die either at the hands of a dog, a 
a snake or a crocodile. Oh, yes. So he yeah. locked him up in a tower. Of course. Because the that's the best way to prevent prophecies from coming true. We all know how well that works. <laughs> Actually, he did let him out when he was grown up. But, yeah. But there is a princess who comes and rescues him, which I love that. So yeah. the earliest version you can find about the child locked up in a tower yeah. is a boy. Excellent. I yeah. suppose also Balor could and often is seen as a representation of a Norse invader. Particularly, there's been like a historical analysis of the manuscript of Maitura, for example, where the manuscript was being created around the time where there were Norse incomers, there was various powers struggling for supremacy in the mm. island of Ireland. So that would have resonated with that yeah. contemporary audience. It's, it clearly has applicability. Yeah. When we were looking at the children of Turin, we discovered another attribute of uh, Balor. Yes. But here he sort of appears as a, a, a Norse frost giant. Yeah. Dragging Ireland north to make it really cold. Which is brilliant. The jet stream could be named Balor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've discovered there certainly is cross influence between the Irish and Norse, particularly the stories, but tends to come a little bit later. Yeah. Oh, and of course, the Children of Turin is the latest. Story. Oh, it is certainly yeah. Where by that time, even the Norse were historical. Exactly, the Lochlannig, yeah. Another thing which I think I see in Balor is this memory of a mysterious ancient long-gone people. Mm. And that's more of a personal thing. When you walk through the landscape of Moitura, mm. each hill is topped by Neolithic ends. Mm. And each one is like a bald head with, mm. with one eye. The mm. door, the closed door opens, so I guess it's open door. And you can imagine people walking through that landscape and seeing these one-eyed, bald-headed giants. Yeah. So, I don't know, I'm not saying that's the origin, mm. but it would have had that resonance even more strongly than it would today. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there is that sense of, you know, displaced Aboriginal peoples right through the Lebergavola itself. I mean, that is the story of the Lebergavola, mm -hmm. is of people coming to Ireland and then and what being forced out. Yeah. And something terrible must have wiped them all out. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But then when you get into the sort of later stages, you've got the Fovera and the Firbolg and the Tuatha de Danann all kind of being displaced by the people that we are now. Yeah, yeah. And this is... A very much a kind of a post-Norman narrative, the idea that there were people here before with a different culture. And the landscape seems to hold strange stories. Oh, yeah. And would have done then as much as it does today, possibly more. Exactly. Then there's one other thing that Balor could be, which is the King Under Waves. In the story we're going to look at, one of Jeremiah Curtin's latest stories, the King Under Waves is the one who sends out the cow mm. and uh, it causes a lot of mischief. Yeah. One of his titles could be the King Under Waves. Well, indeed. I mean, Fovera means under the sea. So any Fovera king or or leader could be described as King Underwave. Well, he could be all of the above and probably is. Or none, or none of, the of them. <laughs> Other, please specify. <laughs> so is there more that we can add now about the Glasgowan four years down the line? <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> Quite. Well, back when we were looking at Maitura in the second series, we finished off by creating kind of a fanciful proto-story of what might underlie the motifs of Moitura. If we to imagine what yeah. the story was in its original form. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And through that, we came to see the Glasgowan as effectively the Holy Grail. Yeah, it's the essence of what everyone's searching for. Exactly. Yeah, it's a case of, well, who owns the cow? Mm. Whom does the grail serve? Mm. It, it's effectively the same sort of question. And I suppose in a society with a 
livestock-based agrarian economy, oh. the fertility and fecundity of the cattle becomes paramount. Oh, yeah. And without it, the country becomes a wasteland. Yes. And therefore, the truth of the king is lost. Exactly. And in fact, there are other stories where a plague on cattle is seen almost as an end-of-the-world thing, particularly the... Character. I seem to remember the last time that uh, foot and mouth oh, hit Ireland. Yes, God, exactly. But, I mean, there's the story, which I think appears in the annals even, of Brashel Bodivad, and Bodivad being cattle plague, basically, who was a very unwise king, and one of the pieces of evidences for that is this huge cattle plague, this disease that affected the cattle of Ireland. So, you know, it's kind of very real in that sense, very much relating to uh, the fertility of the land and the success of the local economy. But it does go deeper than that because we have found that this truth of the king, the fear of Lathavan, is actually deeply intertwined with the relationship between this world and the other world and that maintaining that connection is what both creates and upholds those ideals of honour and of rightness, what we've come to call court. Mm. Well, I mean, the beginning of this uh, folktale the cow is owned by Balor. Mm. And in the variant we discuss later, the cow is owned by the king underway. Mm. But, I mean, every time the cow, rather like the Dagda's harp, mm. if that is stolen or um, won, in fact, it, it allows a change yes. to take place. Whether it's a change in prospects, like somebody gaining kingship or mm. hero status or um, getting a high-status wife or really future fecundity. Yeah. That's yeah. in essence what it's about. And of course, we we know that the cow's not green. It's sea coloured yes. from under the sea. Yeah, this cow from the sea, I think, is, is a very central image. But, you know, that sense of whoever owns the glass gown having access to prosperity. Uh, we did, of course, talk about in the original episode, cows as currency and as a unit of currency. And the article is up there and will be It'll reposted. Be brought, yeah. How much more valuable is a holy grail, for goodness sake? <laughs> a metaphorical holy grail. Yeah, exactly. Cow-shaped beacon. Cow-shaped beacon, yeah. <laughs> so we come to Ethelu herself. Well, we couldn't have discussed the cow no. without including Ethelu, really. Exactly. In a way, she and the cow have the same weighting. Mm. The meaning of her name, for instance, nut kernel, seed. seed, the nucleus, yeah. yeah. And I suppose what she represents is the essential treasure of human fertility mm, as mm. against the fecundity of the cattle. Yeah. This is the real deepest treasure mm. of what keeps the race going. Exactly, yeah. Well, our usual practice is to put up a big red flag and warn people off, conflating all of these mythical women into one great goddess or one specific archetype and particularly all this always all the stuff about the Morrigan and the and Marka. we won't stop saying that exactly exactly you know there's always specificity to be found but I do think Ethelu's a bit different that you know she has several variants on her name she keeps popping up in different stories but playing that role yeah now in the original podcast I talked about the idea of this nut this kernel this nucleus mm. being the center the hub mm. of the wheel and that it is the journey of the hero that changes and moves mm. around the hub like a, like the, the rib of a wheel going right this is the part that moves and the yeah. stays still mm. and that's that that's why Ethelus seems so passive mm. and uh, her 
interactions with the hero change him yeah. or whoever she's interacting with. Mm. I still think it's a good metaphor mm. and I'll hold to that mm. metaphor four years on. Mm. I think particularly for wrestling. Well, a good example of this sort of popping up in different stories is the Ultram Tigadol Vether, otherwise yeah. known as Fostridge of Two Pails or whatever strange and awkward translation you want to give it. Uh, we looked at this in detail when we were looking for Mither and Mananon at the end of series four. Twelve and thirteen. Twelve and thirteen, yeah. It includes this very odd tale about Saint Ethna and we did talk about part of her story in the original episode on Ethlu and I think possibly even later on with the well yes. and the cheese. So in the original episode we talked about how she becomes a saint but when we looked at the whole text of Ultim Tigadol Vether it's really quite clear that it has many elements of being a reworked Tukvark Aedina. So the whole story about the women mm. of Aedina, most especially that Bowen Ethlu story at the very beginning of the Wing of Aideen, which of course is, you know, Ethlu and the birth of Oingus and all that kind of thing. Told in a very disturbing way. A very disturbing, very different way in the Ultram. I mean, if you were looking for cows and holy grails... Or, or in this case, buckets! Or buckets, yeah, you couldn't do better. The only buckets! The Ultram thing of Feather. I mean, it's all about yeah, those two yeah, pails and the two cows giving their holy milk. You it's know? a very unsettling story, though. Yes, yeah. Ethna's story within that is that she's insulted at the brew. Um, and then she fasts, and through this insult and the fasting, she loses her demon. Sort of magical spirit. Yeah, her sort of daemon, demon, whatever. And it gets replaced by this guardian angel, which is really a bit <sighs> peculiar. <laughs> I think we've always found this a weird story. Um, but it's this whole story, it's such a deep insult to Irish native law, native law yeah. and tradition. And it's done so so very cynically ends in baptism and death exactly it really is a classic example now baptism and death it's one of those phrases that we find ourselves increasingly throwing around but as i think we've said before we're kind of currently in research mode to try and discover our own terminology and what mm. it is that we mean by it so this is still an ongoing process we don't have the hard and fast categorizations but can you clarify this connection between the Lawagawala strand and the motif of baptism and death because we've connected them before. Yeah they do seem very close together but I think that there's kind of a fundamental distinction in that the former the Lawagawala strand is a it's a synthetic and ultimately inclusive process whereby kind of all stories are attempting to meld together into one unified historical narrative mm. whereas baptism and death tends to happen where there's a more destructive element where there's an attempt to overwrite a pre-existing narrative and replace yeah, yeah, it with yeah. something else so uh, there's a, a i think a fundamental difference of approach it's something that comes up now and again and yeah. one of these days we'll have to sort of try and write an article well that's it on this. exactly this is the work in progress really what about our list of interrelated Types. Have we updated that? I suppose if we listed all the ones we can who we've covered who are yeah. connected, you've got Ethnu, that's mm. Clothru's sister. Yeah, who of course we learned about in The Well and the Cheese with Maeve and her sisters. That was series three, episode three? Yeah, this was an Ethnu who again drowned and she's the one who sometimes cut fingers off children. Now that might be relevant when we look at a later folktale. Yeah, I'm not sure yet. But of course then there's Boan. Yeah, now this of course is explicitly 
given as a name for Ethlu, particularly at the beginning of Tuckfark Age, you know, when we have the whole story of the birth of Oingus, it says Boand, who is also called Ethlu. So that's quite straightforward. And of course, that's Boand, which is the white cow, and also the Boyne River. We've referenced her again in the Shinnan Series 5, Episode 1. Exactly. That was kind of disambiguating, I suppose, the stories of Shinnan and the, short, and the story of Boand and the creation of the Boyne. But yeah, that's where you'll find the poems on Boand. Bayfind, that's a quite an important one, increasingly. Yes, so. I think so. Um, we came across this as a kind of a title or an honorific that's given to Aideen by Mither when he's trying to remind her of her former existence in this the is other world. Sort of her on the other side. Yeah, exactly. That it seems to be this title. She's the the fair or even the white lady. And in fact, I think when we talked about this in, in terms of the Tukvar Gaidina, I was kind of tentatively trying to make a parallel between the names of Bay Find as a name for Aideen, Boand as a name for Ethlu. There's this kind of parallelism. Yeah. But thinking of what you just said about Aideen, or Ethlu rather, being a sort of human fertility with the glass gowan as a land fertility, yeah, here you've yeah. got a white cow and a white lady. It does that parallel, do seem so, to be parallel. Yeah. Well, we talked about that in Series 3, Episodes 9 to 11. Yeah, that's the whole wooing of Aideen story covered in those three. And of course, Aideen herself. Yeah, exactly. But Aideen, who seems to have a slightly different role, we talked about in the original Ethlu episode. We talked about how Ethlu seems to give birth and disappear. Aideen is most definitely this young woman, this desirable young woman. So it's a different role to what we would usually describe as the ethnic but mainly connected through Bay, through Bay Finn and Boand definitely linked and as we've already noted there's the Glasgow one oh well. yes yeah she's at the heart of it all now there's another name which we can't ignore mm. and indeed we did discuss her in the original episode mm -hmm. yeah now this is Arian Roth forgive my awful Welsh please she in the Welsh story takes Ethlu's role if you like in terms of being the mother of Lou, or in the Welsh, so Now, she's particularly interesting, isn't she? She is. This is one of those times when looking at the parallel traditions and literatures can actually really illuminate um, some of the parts of Irish uh, mythology. One of the things that I always liked is that Arian Rudd, her name means a silver wheel. And sometimes that silver wheel is imagined as the Pleiades, but often as the Milky Way, as this kind of starry wheel that creates a big belt around the mm. earth. And what I quite like is that one of the names for Milky Way in Irish is Balech and Bowina, which means the white cow's path or the white cow's mm. way. So there's this very direct parallel between the idea of Arianoth and her silver wheel and Bowen slash Ethlu and her path across the sky. And again, this is supported by a later folktale, which oh, is yes. the Queen of the Moving Wheel, exactly. which we'll come to later. Certainly the roles that the mothers, Arianrod and Ethlu take, seem to be very different. Mm, absolutely. I mean, we made something of a point in the original episode about Ethlu's seeming passivity and the way that she's almost like the classic or the original absent mother. Certainly in folktale terms. She is the typical fairy tale mother mm. who dies, but the reason she dies out of the story mm. is to free her hero to exceptional deeds. It allows mm. the child to grow up as a hero. Yeah. Um, in a way, it takes him outside the norm mm. and makes him, to some extent, an outsider. This yeah. makes him special. Yes. And I think this is why it's so common in the folk, folk tales yeah. and the fact that a lot of mothers did die. Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, this does sound, how do I put it, horribly Virgin Mary. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it does have elements of it. And when we were talking this through, it did make me think of something. And that's uh, some years ago, I was very interested in the very specific character of the Marion cult in Ireland, which mm, is terribly okay. strong. One of the things that I always found curious is that the name for the Virgin Mary is usually given as Murda, mm. whereas a person called Mary is Murda. And this is interesting because Muir is a, a word for the sea. And there seems to be this connection between the Virgin Mary and the sea. So she's, mm. she's found in these cave grottos mm. all over the country. Some of those are sea caves or they're sort of seaside locations. And then she's got this yes. element of Stella Maris, the star of the sea, Mary star of the sea. And in that guise, if you like, she guides and protects sailors. And she's often depicted wearing a crown of stars. You know, that reminds me of someone. I know. <laughs> that's that's what was starting yeah. to form in my head. Yeah. With Ethlu, you've got, first of all, the glass gown, which yeah, has been yeah. one of the main threads of our discussion and of we her. just pointed out how closely that's connected with the sea. Exactly. I mean, not only being sea-coloured in glass, but there's all these deeper connections, I think, that has something to do with the fertility of the sea and how that interacts mm. with the land. And we'll see that reflected in uh, one of the supplemental stories that we're looking at as well. Then, of course, you've got Ethel's connection with Bowen, who's the white cow or the fair cow. Now, in the original episode, I did point out that you've got Glasgowan as a sea cow and the Bowen, Bowen River seems to be a, a freshwater, mm. you know, running mm. freshwater and so on. But Bowen also has that track through the sky, Balak and Bowena. Oh, the Milky Way. Of the Milky Way, yeah. Arian Rod. Exactly, just yeah. like Arian Rod. And again, we talked about that in the original episode. And then you've got, <laughs> maybe the biggest bit, Ethlu, who has this saviour child, which she conceives mysteriously and is born in secret. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, and I just started to wonder, is the kind of persistence of the Marian cult in Ireland, does that somehow reflect on this very specific images associated with athletes. These strong memories. Exactly. That, that the importance of the Glasgow yes. and the importance of Ethlu yeah. as being an even aiding. I know all yeah. of all of those ways that we've been discussing her as Essentially remembered and exactly. somehow much loved and held on to. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And I'll tell you someone else who would have liked that. <laughs> and that's Jeremiah Curtin, oh. <laughs> who we'll be talking about in the yeah. supplemental. His story, of course, is the Balorantari Island. Yeah. And we'll be talking about him more in the supplemental. Mm -hmm. Because it supports his sort of universalist approach, his scientific approach to folklore. Yes, yes. Now, I've got a lot of sympathy with this, I have to say. <laughs> I don't care if it's structuralist. You know, and this mother who gives birth to an important child in secret mm. is as close to universal as an image can be, really. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty widespread, certainly. And, I mean, this premise is very much behind the very useful hero with a thousand faces, that Joseph Campbell. And yeah. I still think it's a very useful book. Oh, yes. I know, generally, the origin of Mary image we have now mm. is said to be taken from the classical, well, exotic classical yeah. image of Isis. Yeah. But I have to say that Isis was a lot more proactive than Ethel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Isis definitely uh, takes matters into her own hands, quite literally. Quite a lot, yes. yes. And we did talk in the original episode Sorry. about this problem of Ethelu's seeming passivity. But one way that I think that Ethelu is distinct from these other sort of mother figures is in her absence in the rearing of the child itself. And this is really quite specific to Ethel. I think it? it is. And it's something that we came up with again when we 
met her in the well and the cheese that she seems to conceive, gestate and give birth to these interesting characters. But that's kind of where her role as Ethel ends. That's her part ends. of the story. Exactly. Let's go back to Aryan Drog. I've always been very fond of this story, though the Mabinogian Fourth Branch was one of my earliest favourite stories. Yes. And I love she names arms and then marries off her son. One of the points worth noting, I think, in the Aryan story is that moment where she is made to step over the magician's stick Gwydian or stick. Gwydian stick in order to test her virtue and that she drops these two babies, which of course are Slow and Dylan. But it's worth remembering she's deeply offended by this. She's yeah. deeply ashamed of it. And rather than it being something that she was hiding, it's something she didn't know. And so by Gwydian kind of exposing this, it's like making a satire on her. You know, yeah, she's effectively yeah. been satirised She's and deeply shamed. And in fact, we may be able to throw more light on this again in one of these later folktales exactly, stories. Exactly, yeah. One of the not-so-nice aspects of the way women <laughs> end up being treated in these stories. Well, anyway, Arian tries to be an absent mother. Mm. Um, she tries very hard to yeah. be an absent mother but... and eventually is tricked into compliance. But I still think it's a good story. Oh, it's fantastic. And I've always been particularly interested in, in the motive of the mother arming and training her son. Yeah. That just appeals to me. Particularly with Arian Rudd and the way that she gives arms and a name to her son accidentally. Mm. And that kind of makes you go looking and say, oh, well, does that happen in the Irish stories? It's not necessarily the birth mother in Irish stories, and that's probably because of the institution of fosterage. Mm -hmm. Because the, the deepest relationship between child and adult was that of foster parents. And we do have stories, not so much kind of legal backing, but in stories, male champions are very often fostered to warrior women. You've got the famous one, haven't you? The big one of Cúchulainn, who is sent off to Scotland, or possibly, or more likely, one of the Scottish islands, in order to be trained by Scothach, Uachach and Aitha. It's supposed to be Skye, definitely one yeah, of the well, islands. Yeah, well, they say that Skye is named for Scothach, but then they also say that Scotland is named for Scothach. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things you kind of go, hmm, maybe, but... It's one of those islands anyway. Well, especially when we've seen that many of the Inner Hebrides mm. seem to, for the Irish stories, yeah. have a very, very strong association with, with the other world islands. Yes, yeah. and, well. and fosterage. Fosterage, yeah. That the fosterage to man and on also seems to happen in, in these Hebridean Island. islands. Like a, an article I put up recently on Scaffa. Yes, yeah. Which seems to be the origin of the island of the pillar. Yeah. Anyway, to get back to Cúchulainn being armed and trained by women... It's specifically for that purpose he's sent to these three women, Skahakanuahak and Aifa. What's interesting in that, though, is that Aifa's role is sexual training. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about he's armed and named and given a bride. It's more practical again. It's much more practical. He's taught, you know, technique probably and, you know, etiquette and all those other things. And in fact, Aifa is the mother of his only son. So, you know, there's no doubt that that was, you know, the sexuality was a part of that process. You know, it always sounded to me as if it had to be based on forgotten or abandoned custom. Mm. That, as you say, there's really no basis for it in early Irish law, is it? I think not directly, you know, but the fact that it's so prevalent in stories shows us that there's some underlying idea in story terms that that's what the young hero has to go through. Yeah. And, and Finn, I think, is also trained by two women. Yes, his aunt, yes, you know. that's right. So it, it does crop up repeatedly. It's more than a coincidence. Oh, yeah. Well, now, this brings us to these... 
two stories that we've been referencing throughout this update. I think it's time to say a bit more about those, particularly because one of them will throw some light on this whole question of Eslu and Arianrod. Well, the first of the stories that's likely to become available is Elingal the Swordsmith and the Cow Glasgannock from Curtin's Hero Tales of Ireland. Mm. Now, this is clearly a version of the Birth of Lou story, but with sort of added elements that the storyteller feels were left out or badly explained. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's the second of these is the one that I was just talking about, and it's called The Son of the King of Ireland and the Queen of the Moving Wheel. It's again from a curtain collection, but this time it's a collection called Irish Folk Tales. This story throws up some very interesting questions about any connection that we might have made between Ethlu and Arianrod, and therefore about any connection between Lou, the Irish Lou, and So. Now, a number of times we've kind of referred to the story of especially the childhood and exploits of Slough as almost like a missing piece to the puzzle of the story of the Irish Lou. But mm. if you listen to this story, that could actually not be the case <laughs> at all. <laughs> Just make sure that you get to listen to the supplemental podcast for some real surprises. Yeah, now, I'd better explain supplemental podcast. What are we on about? What we have decided to do is experiment with adding some extra material in separate episodes for you to listen to and in each of these we'll go through one of those stories and discuss it as we go. A folk tale or something that throws more light on our, our original uh, topic. Exactly and part of this is so that we can go into those other stories which are wonderful and fascinating and entertaining in a little bit more depth and perhaps try and keep <laughs> the thread <laughs> such as it is of the main episode slightly less tangled. tangled. <laughs> But for now, sit back and enjoy a freshly edited version of our original podcast, Tales of Ethlu. That's The Birth of Lou. It's a folk story. It's generally known in its folktale form. It's a great story about a fairy tale princess trapped in a tower like Rapunzel, a giant of a father trying to stop her from growing up and her prince rescuing her. A story about her conception and birth, but why is it so significant, do you think? It's a very interesting in terms of being a folk story because it's a story that actually we only have in a folktale form, but it relates to one of the great old Irish literary works, which is the Battle of Moitura, Cath Magatirit, which I'm sure we've mentioned before. We will certainly mention again, watch this space, but it's a little bit too convoluted and long-winded to go into now. Suffice it to say that Lou, or Lug, as it would be pronounced in Old Irish, but most people are familiar with him as Lou, was the hero of the Tua de Danann. It was he that came back from having been raised in secret and led the Tua de Danann against uh, the Fovera, the Fomorian uh, invaders, and ultimately led them to victory as their champion. He was known as Ildanach, which literally is just the many-crafted one, which I think says a lot about the ideals of the culture of the time, that to actually have the many skills was something to be valued. This is the story of his birth, which you would imagine in a saga text, like the Battle of Maitura, that you would include the conception and the birth of its kind of central hero and champion, but it doesn't appear in the text itself. And in fact, we get it mostly from 
this folktale version, which you will find up around North Donegal. The tower is said to be on Tory Island. Ah, yeah, the island of the tower. Yes, it seems to be particularly strong up in Donegal, Mm -hmm. this story, and and the birth stories seem to be um, centred there. But Balor, oh, now he's fascinating. He seems to be almost the origins of the one-eyed giant. And the Fomora, who represent all that is unformed chaos stuff the unconscious, the, that which bubbles up from the bottom of the sea. Uh, whenever there's something unknown, unformed, there are the one-eyed, one-footed, one-armed, strange giants. And Balor himself is an absolutely archetypal one. He has this great eye which uh, has to be kept closed all the time because if he dares open it, he will poison the whole land, scorch it dry. In fact, he has to have it lifted by people on the battlefield later on when he wishes to lift his eye scorch all the warriors he actually has to have it lifted by other people to help him a team of minions team of minions who open his great eye but at this point in the story he is a folktale giant who has decided to imprison his daughter because she might grow up to bear a son who will kill him good old classical typical stuff appears all over the world in fact that sort of motive yes and and that part of the story does appear within the the story of Maitura it's the decisive point in the battle is this fulfilment of prophecy where Lou does kill his grandfather. But interestingly, throughout the story of Maitura and uh, throughout other stories where Lou appears, including the story of the birth of Cúchulain, uh, he's always known as Lou MacNethlin. He's always known as Lou, the son of Ethlin or Ethlu, which is particularly significant. I mean, even back then, people were generally known by their as the son of whoever their father was but Lou it's always his mother's name that he carries hmm. so poor old Keir never really gets a look in does not he? not really no it is significant that he's known by his mother's name because there's another version of the story in the Welsh Mabinogion in the fourth branch of the story Lou the Welsh Lou is a very important character and uh, his birth there is given very clearly. It's a strange story, though, because Math is about to give Arianrod in marriage to another Welsh prince after a long and complicated story about a lot of pigs. <laughs> Just before he gives her in marriage, he wants to check that she is fit to marry and asks her to step over a, a stick, obviously a magic stick, or I'm not going into that. In stepping over the stick, she drops a child, The first child is a well-formed child and he's named Dylan and the moment he's baptised he leaps into the sea and becomes Dylan of the wave and goes off into another story. She also drops something else, something small which uh, Marth picks up quickly and hides in a scarf. And this it transpires later when he checks the chest he's put the scarf in. It turns out there's a beautiful child there. This baby has no name. The child is brought up by Gwydion. He knows it's uh, the child of Arinrod. But Arinrod doesn't seem to know this. <laughs> well, they go off to visit Arinrod in her castle, and uh, there he introduces the child to the mother, and uh, she's kind of horrified and says, why are you shaming me like, like this? And he said, well, actually, I've come to ask you to give your son a name, which he refuses. And she refuses to give the child a name or give him arms or to train him anyway. He refuses to give him a wife, which, which in this story is the, the job of the mother. She has to be tricked into giving him his name, Lou or the Welsh Lou, mm. into giving him arms, he's tricked again, and into giving him the wife. I'll put references to this on the blog. Uh, but it is significant. 
he clearly has no father. The father isn't mentioned at all. So this seems to be a, a much more detailed version of the birth of Lou. There is still this problem. She does still seem to be a bit of a fairy tale princess in our story of Ethelin. Okay, Arian Rod's a bit more active, but Ethelin doesn't do much, does she? This has been the very thorny issue for uh, feminists through the generations, particularly when looking at folklore and mythology, is all of these very wussy, passive girlies who seem to have everything done unto them. I think we get a very good insight, though, if we look at the meaning of Ethlin's name. For a start, Ethlin is, in linguistic terms, it's the genitive, the possessive form. And I think that that is the name she's known by in this sort of slightly later folktale version, because whenever Lou is introduced, who, to most people's minds, is much bigger, more important, shiny character. And he's called Lou Mock Ethelin, but there the Ethelin is in the genitive, the possessive case. What the name would have been in older Irish would be Ethlu. Now, sometimes it sounds like the L mm. sound quite often get slightly changed. Sometimes they get changed to an R. Sometimes in this case, it's swapped around with an N. So you also do get the form Ethnu. But the F part, the important part of her name, at its root, it means the colonel with a mm -hmm. K, nothing military about it the <laughs> kernel of a nut or a seed or indeed a nucleus oh i like that idea she's a nucleus something that splits and is able to grow into many different forms i've also come across her as ethna as well yeah that would be another sort of just very slight sound variation uh, would be ethna or ethnu in our stories she's always ethna this kernel the nucleus so it's all about conception gestation and birth if you see the name ethlu you can be pretty certain that the story concerns specifically those that time from conception through the pregnancy and then finally to the birth and often not much more than that. We meet Ethlu again in the birth of Angus, Angus Oak. In that story Ethlu is married to Elkvar uh, but she really fancies the Dagda and the Dagda fancies her too. It's made very clear it's a mutual thing. The only reason Ethlu won't go to bed with the Dagda is because she's scared of her husband. So the Dagda very cleverly, as he often does, sends Elkvar away on some task or errand which is going to take them quite a long time so that Dagda and Ethlu can get down to it. And in order to conceal the fact that they've been together and uh, in this case have actually who has gone through the whole pregnancy and had a child at the end of it, they have sent Elkwer away for nine months but made him think that he was just away for a day. And Ethlu then says, it's a young son who can be conceived and born in a single day. And that's how he gets his name, Oingus Machindog, Angus the Young Son. All this takes place in the Bruna Boyne, doesn't it? It does, yes. Angus later claims Bruna Boyne as his own place. He uses the same argument, doesn't he? Does, he does, yes. He, he he asks to sit in it for a day and a night. And after he's done that, and it's actually Elkvar who wants it back, and he says, no, you've actually given it to me for the whole of time, because what is time but a whole load of days and nights? <laughs> sophistry and it's trickery. wonderful it's this is the stuff i really like it is sophistry but it's also you know saying things about the nature of time and space and, and, all that lovely stuff. <laughs> and how to get your own way by trickery exactly exactly but it's you're right that the boyne is important because eslu in this story they say very clearly she is also the boyne 
She mm. is Bowen. And Bowen is uh, it's quite a widely used Celtic title. In older Celtic, it would have been Bovinda, the white cow. So we've got another Ethlin. Yes. Another birth and another cow. Yep. Because it's very interesting. I mentioned Balor being the giant of the femora. And these femora were supposed to have come from the seabed, mm. from the, the place of the unknown. But interesting enough, if I gather that the Gus Gowan also means the, the cow of sea colour. Yes. Colour words, one of my lovely hobby horses. Maybe if Chris isn't looking one day, I'll sit and record a secret podcast where I rant on about colour words. But in this, I think it is important to look at both the Glasgowan and Bow Inth and look at the colours given to them because on the surface it seems as if the Glasgowan is maybe a grey-green cow and that Bow Inth is a white cow. But when we look at what the colour words mean, Finn is a term for white bubbling, fast-flowing water, very often from a well or over rapids, a young stream, that white... A young white, river like yeah. the Boyne or the Shannon. Yeah, but at the source where it, where it bubbles up and where it flows fast. Or the well. And glass, very definitely, it's the colour of the sea, which is why it's so difficult to translate into English, because you're saying, well, it's, sometimes it's grey and sometimes it's green, sometimes it's blue. What it is is sea-coloured. In modern Irish, it seems to have settled down as green. Green, yeah, and that, that <laughs> definitely confused me in primary school, I'll tell you that much, because Irish colour words yeah. don't fit into those sort of spectrum colours. So both stories, we have a birth, yes. we have a trick, yeah. we have a cow, but yeah. one of freshwater yes. and one of seawater. Yes. Uh, I find that interesting. So, Etlin's a bit of a cow, is she? Oddly enough, in the last podcast, we were looking at the importance of cattle, Mm. not only for meat and milk, but also as a measure of wealth. And a unit of currency, even. Certainly in the times when these stories were being told and committed to in written form, that was so, wasn't it? The cow was a very important... I think that what we have in these stories is almost the layer underneath that. Um, And that's, if you like, the symbolic importance of cows. Of course they're important on that day-to-day level of survival and because of that then they become a measure of wealth and and of currency but they also have this very important symbolic role and particularly in Ireland and in fact when you were talking about the Mabinogion earlier and how there was this great story with swine involved and pigs. That was basically the Welsh version of the cattle raid of Cooley, mm-hmm. but where the Welsh love their pigs, we love our cows. And isn't Bowen, isn't she connected with the Milky Way? Yes, she is. The constellation name, if you like, or the, the common name for the Milky Way in Irish, is Balak or Shlia Moina, which means the, the way or the path of the white cow. I love that. That is beautiful. There's so little star lore in the Irish stories. Uh, I suppose we have to be lucky to be able to see the stars at all. Exactly, yes. And of course, when you get to see the whole Milky Way stretching from one horizon to the other, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Oddly enough, there's another connection because Mm. Arian Rod means silver wheel. Yes. And although her name is often connected by people nowadays, is connected with the Pleiades, Somehow Silver Wheel feels much more as if it should be connected to the Milky Way. Yeah, I I think so, certainly. And there are some quite confusing Irish and Welsh folk stories that talk about a wheel that raises and lowers itself above the earth. And, of course, the Milky Way... Although it's pretty consistent, it doesn't always join up at the horizons. No, it feels like a wheel around the earth. When you see on a fine night, Mm. the Milky Way, like a great band across the sky. Mm. I mean, when I lived in the city, I never realised just how 
incredibly mm. beautiful the Milky Way was. Mm. So many stories. I mean, is it the milk of the goat mm. in the Greek stories? Or, or maybe even a load of fish bones, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> There's an Australian Aboriginal story in which all the women decide to have a party, so they get the men to go out fishing and hunting, and they come back with a load of fish. There's so much fish, in fact, they can't eat it all. So the women say, right, that's going to stink, do something. So the men go off and call all the cats. The cats come and eat the fish. I think that domesticates them just a tiny bit. But after the cats have eaten all the fish, there's a load of fish bones back left. So the women go, right, we can't have all that mess. Do something about it. So the men turn themselves into birds and dump all the fish bones in the sky. And they're still there. So, so they, they quite literally do a tidy up. A tidy upwards, yeah, tidy up. That's another story. And it's nice to see the men doing the clearing up. For once. That's why they had to make a story about it. So besides the unit of wealth and currency, there is a symbolic layer to this. Mm. Oh, interesting. Now, Balor covets this cow. If this is a sea-coloured cow... The connection with the colour of the cow and the nature of the cow is is from the sea, mm. as Bowen's cow is from the fresh water, mm. and Balor himself is is a, a seabed giant. The foot Vira from under the sea, from literally. under the sea, literally. In which case, he may have a right to the cow in some way. Mm. When he goes to take the cow and brings it back to his isle. And if Ethlin, if you like, also that this is her symbol, what's happening here is, is some sort of exchange or is it more like matter and antimatter? If Ethlin and the cow exist in the same place, will the world explode? <laughs> the symbolic realm is, is not quite as, I suppose, simple and straightforward as that. There's the deep connection, obviously, between Ethlu and the uh, Glasgowan, between the Ethlu, who's also Bowen, and the Bowind. It's not like Zeus turning himself into a big white bull and going off and... <laughs> yeah, it was a nice know. thought, isn't it? Just yeah. imagine you've got this stony isle with this great tower of mm-hmm. glass and suddenly this sea, this cow appears and there's a wonderful explosion and in that... Oh, well, you could... Yeah, I'm sure Hollywood would have a field day. <laughs> I just like the image. Mind you, there was another Ethna whose story mm. I really liked. I actually once painted it. It's a very strange and whimsical story about uh, three women of the Tour de Don and um, one of them being Ethna, and they all go out bathing as they do. And one of them, Ethna, loses her cloak of immortality. And that means she cannot return to the Tour de Don. And she wanders in this half state, in, half in this world, half in that, until she's found found by, I think it's St. Patrick or some other saint, but she won't eat. till eventually she accepts the milk of a cow and this grounds her to this world, at which he promptly grabs this opportunity, baptises her, turns her into a nun, and two weeks later, as usual, she's dead. Yes. You realise that anybody who gets turned into a nun... Well, anyone who gets baptised, anyone from the Tour de Danon who's ever been baptised dies, dies almost immediately. <laughs> I think there's a warning, a little health warning in there somewhere. Yeah, be careful of saints. If they baptise yeah. you, you've had it. Well, if you, if you want some very odd, some medieval Christian confused imagery, just have a look in that book right there. And this is supposed to be a dictionary, and this is the only entry it has under Ethna. I mean, we've just given you three or four stories already concerning Ethna or Ethlu. This is the only one within this uh, reference book. Oh, but this is a wonderful story. Her story is told in a text from about the 14th century, According to this, she was the daughter of the steward of Angus and was reared along with the daughter of Malanan in the fosterage of Angus at Brunaboyne. When Ethna grew up, she was a beautiful girl, but was insulted by a remark passed by a visitor to the brew, 
and as a result, she would touch neither food nor drink. After seven days, Angus offered her the milk of a dun cow, one of two marvellous cows which he and Mananan had brought from India. She herself milked the cow and drank its milk, which tasted like honey and wine. When Mananan in his dwelling at Awanavlak heard the news, he summoned the maiden to him, for he knew the remedy for every ailment. When Ethna arrived, she would only partake of the milk of the other marvellous cow from India, the speckled animal, which Mananan had himself. Then Mananan understood that when she was insulted in Brunaboyne, her guardian demon had left her, and had been replaced by a guardian angel. She was thus no longer one of the two a day, but had become a Christian, and would accept nourishment only from the righteous land of India. For many ages she lived on the milk of the two cows until St. Patrick came to Ireland. After bathing in the River Boyne one day, her cloak, the invisibility of the two a day, left her until she met the cleric and went with him to his hermitage near the brew. Patrick soon arrived there later, as did Angus and his people in search of her. The latter demanded her back, but Patrick refused and tried unsuccessfully to convert Angus, who departed with a cry of anguish. Ethna was baptised and died a fortnight later and was buried with Christian honours. <laughs> well, I love the bit about he knew that yes. she'd become a Christian and would only drink milk from the righteous land, land of, of India. India yeah. That does seem a little confusion. It does seem a bit confused, but there, there are some very important elements in common between the version that you had come across and uh, this uh, 14th century sort of medieval Christian hodgepodge. It's a wonderful <laughs> medieval tale, isn't it? It is. And fun. actually, though we probably don't have time to yeah. go into it, has this wonderful reference to the losing of the demon and the gazing of the angel. Yes. Because in medieval times, there was a lot of discussion about what the fairies were, what the mm. Shia were, what, what was a demon, what was an angel, and yeah. whether they were active, passive, neutral, fallen, not fallen. It's reflected in the Irish literature in a kind of confusion of that of that type because they're trying to take you know material which really doesn't have this you know massive dichotomy between the good forces of good and the forces of evil and certain beings being either totally good or totally evil yeah. and they're trying to kind of fit the stories into that kind of a paradigm and they don't really fit and that's when you end up with the most sacred holy christian land of india it's a bit tough on the hindus i know yeah <laughs> poor things and of course the hindus the didn't even have a sacred cow according to qi but that's another story. That is another story. Yeah. Actually, there is a bigger question here. Yeah. I was ju just asking you yesterday, could you actually give me an example of evil in the Irish stories, a story that actually centred around good and evil? We actually couldn't think of one. No, that will come Shinskelele. up. It's definitely a big part of our reading of the, the Battle of Maitura, which will be a series in itself, I promise you. But let's get back to it. Let's. Even though that is really quite a eclectic version, there are still similarities with the story that you told us before mm -hmm. of Ethna, um, particularly the relationship again with cows. And in that one that you've just read for us, uh, one of the cows was a dun cow. Dun is another wonderful colour word, which became a muddy brown colour because that's the colour of an otter, who in Irish is dover coo, which is the freshwater hound. The other bit, the bit that came to mean dun brown, um, actually means the colour of fresh flowing water. <laughs> it's so crazy, we have another it? watery cow. Yeah. In both those stories, Ethna would only drink the milk of, of a cow. And in fact, in that one as well, she's specifically said to be bathing in the Boyne, mm. which we know is 
best. Yeah. Just sort of another watery cow. There are there are various folk stories, mm. uh, particularly in the Welsh, of uh, fairy women being drawn out of water to marry people who have summoned them at least for a while, and they always bring a dowry in the form of cows yeah. from out of the water. Yeah. There are several versions of that. So mm. it just came to my mind as yeah. we were talking that this appears as a folk motif quite yeah. frequently. Yeah. The other very interesting similarity there is the, the losing of the ability to be invisible. You know, this loss of a cloak or a coat. Or a skin. Or a skin, yeah. As in the silky. Or Going back to the folk motif I was just talking mm. about, often that underwater being is mm. drawn out of the water and is kept out of the water because she loses her skin or a cloak. What we have then is this ethno character who goes into the water and by going into the water loses her way or or is lost to her own people. And that links in with another important ethno. This is one where on the surface might not seem to fit this pattern of the ethno we've been talking about involved with conception and birth. And that's the story of ethno who is a sister to Maeve well-known Queen of Connacht, and the other sister is Clothru, who was Queen of Connacht before Maeve was, and that is something we will definitely be coming back to. It's a fantastic story. But Maeve, as well as killing Clothru to gain the sovereignty of Connacht, she pushes Esnu, the other sister, into a river, and she's then gone from them, and this, of course, becomes the River Inny. Which isn't that far from here. Yeah. So, as well as this conception and birth motif and as well as this kind of watery cow which is not an insult by the way motif we also have this motif of something that's hidden or lost or invisible or unseen and that brings us back to ethnu as the seed or the kernel or even the nucleus Mm. and oddly enough the one sister pushing the other sister in the river in order to gain sovereignty or gain the prize or gain Mm. territory uh turns up again as a folktale motif the two sisters Sisters, Benary, uh, that they usually her breastbone is made into a harp, mm. and then she is able to tell her story. Yes, in the, the ethnic story, she does get her own back later on. Well, effectively, between herself and Cothru, their uh, descendants do actually manage. We won't give it a, give away the ending, but they do manage to bring an end to Maeve. Mm. Um, I want to keep that treat for another day because it's a really good one. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Ethelin. Yeah, right. Playing devil's advocate, I think to an observer of these stories or to a reader of these stories or even a listener, she still seems horribly passive. Let's look at the various Ethelins. One, she loses her baby. Two, she refuses to acknowledge her baby. Three, she ends up getting pushed in a river. Or four, best of all, gets to be a dead nun. (laughs) Not exactly assertive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not if you put it like that, maybe. But the, the Irish stories, they're not linear in form. And if we remember that as well that Ethnu is a nucleus, uh, that's not something that's beginning, middle, end, and that Ethnu has a very particular role. The Irish stories, as are the Welsh, Mm. they're not constructed in the normal narrative way that we think about stories. The storyteller's canon was divided into sort of births, conceptions, journeys, deaths, uh, marriages... Uh, all the rites of passage in mm. life. And often the stories seem to reflect not a journey, but mm. uh, but these particular incidents. Mm. And you'll have often male characters going through these stages, almost like stations on a railway line. Mm. But the women 
if you like, are the, the ones who kick them from station to station, yes. to use the analogy. So stories don't often set women as boring heroes pushed around by fate. They're the ones who do the pushing, and I'm not just talking about birth. They're the point around which the action revolves, uh, the hub, the fulcrum, uh, the nucleus. I suppose if you want to look at, a, look at the picture, think of a great wheel. The hero makes the journey right round the wheel, but at every point on the wheel, he gets completely stuck, hemmed down, bogged down, and it's a, a woman, often with a different name, same woman, different name, will come and kickstart him to the next one. Mm. So it's the Etlim figure who yes. may kickstart him to the next stage, which is his training. Yes. And of course, with Ethlu, what we have is that centre point, the hub. And of course, we have another clue from Arianrod, the wheel as well. So I think that that's a very helpful way to understand the role of the women in these stories and that each time they come from the centre and, and sort of enter into the linear story of the male, usually male hero, they can appear to be someone completely different. And so by the time the birth has happened, the next time you see her, she won't necessarily be called Eslu. No, and I do find it significant that with the Ethnon stories, she's so frequently given that name. Mm. And maybe that's because that's the beginning one. Exactly. But when you move on to the next stage of the wheel, which is the training of the young hero, whether mm. it's Gohulun or whether it's Lu or whether it's or Fion, uh, Fion mm -hmm. they're always taken away from their mothers, they're always hidden, they're always brought up by someone else and given this superhero training, mm. which uh, fits them for the next stage of this magical path. In this case, in the Irish, it's Birog of the mountains, mm. who you told me the name means... Well, my best guess at the moment is that a bird is... It can be a point, as in a point of land, but it also can mean a thorn. So a nice <laughs> so little thorn him, pushing him. to give him a little poke. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mind you, some of the other characters have a little bit more of a, a problem now. Cahulam, for instance... Mm. Again, he is taken off, he's trained. People often know the stories as his childhood. He has to go off to women to be trained. And uh, he goes off to, uh, it's often it's known as the Isle of Sky. Yes. The land of shadows, the mist land of shadows. And he goes off and meets two wonderful warrior women who are called... Skahuk and Uhuk. And uh, there's also Aifa, Aoife. Who she often gets forgotten. Yes, she is the, the third one yeah. because she's um, teaching him about sexuality. Mm -hmm. And when he comes back, he's fully trained. Mm. Uh, that's another story. Mm -hmm. That's a great story. And then the interesting one is probably Iron Rod herself. She has refused to acknowledge her son. Mm. So she has to be tricked into giving him a name. Mm. And this is done, Gwydion disguises himself and the child as, as shoemakers. Mm. And out of sedge and grass, makes leather and goes to her castle where they're making these wonderful shoes. And he tricks her into coming down and uh, watching as he makes the shoes. And the child is busy shooting a wren. Mm. Probably significant. She goes, oh, the young lion has a steady hand. Ah, he says, you've named the child. Mm. Well, the second time he again disguises himself and the child and goes to her castle, he sets up a scenario where she thinks she's being attacked by a great army. And she says, everybody has to help defend the castle and gives the child arms. The invading army immediately disappears. Mm. And of course, later on, the more well-known story, Gwydion makes for Lou a woman made of flowers as a bride. Mm. 
But that's another story and a beautiful and very mm. strange story. But the point here is that uh, it is Arian Roth herself yes. who stands in the role of trainer, mm. even that's though reluctantly. Exactly, and, and in a way, through this story, uh, through her refusal and having to be tricked into doing these things, it makes it really clear that that is normally the job of the mother. Mm -hmm. is to give the name, give the training, and then eventually give the bride as well. This appears so frequently in the stories. Mm. There's the importance of the mother giving the name to the child, arming the child, mm. and also um, acknowledging the wife. And mm. yet there seems to be no legal background to that. No, I mean, in, in the law texts and status texts um, that, that I have studied, now I haven't obviously read every single bit of every single one, I'm not Mr Binchy. No, I haven't come across this as a, as a woman's role from those texts. Now, you know, I'd, I'd love to find some indication in any of them, if someone does know of a source, uh, that might uh, shed some light on this. It seems to be most definitely a story role. I don't know how it interacts mm. with the society of the time. I don't know well, how obviously it, it was acceptable yeah. as, the, the, as it enters into the written form of the story. Yeah, not just ex acceptable, but obviously uh, expected. expected. Yeah. So if it was archaic, mm. it was accepted and mm. understood. Mm. That's something that needs more researching. Yes. Maybe it connects up with fosterage in some way. I would say most definitely. You know, that, that definitely reflects the pattern of fosterage. Now that we're sort of wondering how this position relates to texts that, that reflect, if you like, people's everyday lives, the way that society actually functioned. And we haven't really shown how this story and the stories we've looked at are part of story archaeology. We've begun with an oral form of the story. Mm. Uh, there is no literary, written down, ancient form of the mm. birth of Lou. It does appear in the Mabinogion. The Mabinogion uh, particularly does have a historical relationship to the story of Maitura, that there is most definitely uh, you know, a historical connection between those two texts. But the actual story that we started with doesn't appear in any written form until centuries later. Balor on Tory Island mm. is a very late form. It's written down late. Yeah. We don't know. It is an oral form. Yes, and it does, of course, it, it does relate to, you know, the ninth century versions of, of the, the Battle of Moitura. But, you know, we've gone right up through to that 14th century half-Christianised... <laughs> confused India mm. is obviously the seat of Christianity version of mm. the ethno story. So what we actually have is ethno if, if we take the archaeology Anology. terminology, yeah. Um she is an artifact, which is I feel almost uh, insulting to say that. I hope she doesn't start fasting against me. But an artifact that appears in layer after layer of the stories and uh, has the same form pretty much each time. She still is playing the same role, uh, even though she's appearing in places centuries yes. apart you from can, each other. You can actually find her where her name appears in several strata. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how it goes on. Maybe we'll come back to some of these scenes later on. I know we certainly will come back to the story of Maeve. Yes, yeah. And the story of Moitura. Yes. And we'll hear of Lou again, and we'll hear of Maeve again and through and many more of our people. Yes. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Agalith Manegas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com